to Subtext and Discourse. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, co-owner and director of Berlin-based contemporary art gallery, Jarvis Dooney. Today's episode is part two of my interview with Korean-Canadian artist Kat Lamora. Although it is possible to enjoy this installment standalone, I would recommend first listening to part one to have a more complete impression of Kat and their work. Whichever you decide to do, let's listen to the second half of our conversation. Um, I was thinking with your card, or the, the image in the show from your series, The Talisman, mm-hmm. the, the title I didn't have before, and I saw that it was called The Sun, the Moon, and the Five Peaks. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you about what the five peaks are and the, I guess, the symbolism within, within this installation that you created. Mm-hmm. Uh, so The Talisman is about uh, the Korean traditional painting style called Minhwa. Mm-hmm. And um, there would be these untrained painters who would wander from town to town, city to city, village to village. And often they would sit at a marketplace or under the sacred tree uh, of the area. And uh, people would come up to them and go, you know, my son's been sick for three weeks and I am so worried uh, that he's not going to get better. And some people would come and say, I would really like to get, you know, find my true love and I'm having trouble. Uh, and these artists would use whatever was around them, like tree branches, uh, rocks, you know, blades of grass, uh, to paint these symbols, you know, animals, trees, uh, insects, um, you know, the peaks and the sun and the moon to make this talisman for them. And yeah. they would say, you know, go hang it in your bedroom, go hang it in your kitchen, things like that. And so people, it was for good luck or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for good energies and also to prevent, I mean, to bring specific things into the home. Mm-hmm. And the the sun, the moon, and the five peaks piece is actually a very ancient piece. So ever since the Chosun dynasty has been around, uh, whenever the king would sit down at the government, you know, center, um, the right wing party, the left wing party would come and stand in front of him. And then he would have a throne and behind the throne would be this beautiful, massive piece. And it was called the sun, the moon and the five peaks. Oh, okay. And every time that king would, that specific king would be, you know, raised up to the crown and then pass away, the piece would be, uh, buried with his body to be, to be sealed forever mm-hmm. um, and then when the new king rose then another piece would be painted for him and it it, it has these messages of well-wishing uh, for luck and balance you know the sun and the moon being present and the five peaks you know we we take it as uh, different elements that are present um, from somebody that I talked to uh, who was more knowledgeable uh, knowledgeable about Minhua was saying that the five peaks actually uh, celebrate the five elements of the universe. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's literally looking at the world as a plane of energy and of balance and well-wishing, not simply just the king. That's the, the part that I found interesting was that it was a reminder for the king. Every time he would go in the morning to sit down at his throne, he would look at the painting and know that his duty was to the people. Yeah. Uh, and not to himself or to the poli- political parties. Mm-hmm. This has been present in Korean culture for thousands of years. I mean, you still see them in the palace uh, that is restored and present in, in, in Seoul today. And what I did was to reinterpret Minhwa and various works, uh, specifically the, the Sun, the Moon and the Five Peaks, 
and add to that strata of, of voices. And in, in that, um, I was hoping that I was adding something valuable, being able to see sort of from the outside perspective of being outside Korea and then adding to that strata of voices of my ancestors. Wow. The, I saw that there were additional pieces in the series. There were, yeah. So did you want to speak about those? So one was about, it was one with voices, there was an eye or something? Yes. Like the, yeah, maybe you can explain better. For sure. Uh, so the bowl piece uh, to become a big bowl is a piece that is dedicated to my grandmother. Uh, a few days before I left to immigrate to Canada, she asked me to come to her home and uh, she you know, fed me, we had these talks about how it was going to be amazing. And at the end of the evening, she sat me down, pulled me into her arms. And all I remember of that moment is just such strength and warmth from, from the heat of her, her body. And she said to me, she said, become a big enough bull that you can encompass the mountains and the rivers and the skies of, of your homeland. Because she said, as long, we are all pieces that are on the throwing wheel. And for as long as we continue to turn it, we will continue growing larger and larger into bigger bowls. And that's a very, um, also another ancient saying in Korea, uh, about people being bowls and, you know, what they carry in their bowls make them who they are. Oh. The size, the birth, you know, the shape. Mm-hmm. We're all, you know, pieces that are still either, you know, turning or being fired or, you know, and I I actually really love that analogy because when I was thinking about where I wanted to go as an artist and what I wanted to speak about, I think that was the goal was to become a big enough bull that one day I could encompass those mountains. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, the to pour the ocean into my eyes was a piece that... uh, is related to the the oceans of Korea. So I grew up in in Korea in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the the peninsula in a place called Daejeon. And we, you know, how every region has this like pride and and, and, uh, sort of they want to advertise sort of why they're sort of this like great tourist destination. One of the reasons was we're surrounded by three mountains. (laughs) 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 And um, the... I, I really actually enjoyed every weekend my family would drive out to the coastline and go see the ocean. And I really liked those trips. And for the first time, I hadn't, there was a point where I was living in Canada and I didn't really have the opportunity to go back because tickets are so incredibly expensive, probably even more so back then. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first thing that I wanted to do was go to Busan, which is at the very tip of Korea. It's a port city. And incredibly beautiful, sort of the second biggest city after Seoul. Um, and I had this wonderful day. And then I went to this temple where it is said that a black dragon rose up out from the ocean and exited through where the temple site was. And they built a temple around it. And uh, I remember just staring. I was standing right at the cliffs watching the waves crash and crash and crash. And it was almost like that image was stuck in me and I could not ever take it out of my brain you know no I I felt that in that moment even that no amount of years could ever pull that memory away from me no matter what yeah and so that was one of the pieces that I wanted to redo because waves is another huge theme in Minha um Koreans being you know we we love fish they they did seafare quite a bit Mm -hmm. and so 
I want to include that piece to to be a personal also memento as well as a, a Minhua reinterpretation. And then I think there's also unspoken conversations. Yeah, that was the other one I was thinking of. Yeah. That has, I mean, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but that had waves on it. It did, yeah, yeah it okay. has waves in it. Um, <laughs> and it has the, the also the five strips um, that end in a half arc. Mm-hmm. And those are also the, we are, we really like the number five and the elements. Um, so that also symbolizes the different elements. Uh, but that piece is also very emotional. I think that one is actually the most emotional out of them all because it's, there came a point where I had become more comfortable with speaking English than speaking Korean. Mm-hmm. And any time that I would try to voice my opinions or feelings or thoughts in Korean, I couldn't really express them to the full degree that I could with English. Oh, really? Um, and there came a lot of strife between me and my family, especially my parents, because they are very traditional, you know, Confucian Korean parents. Um, and they started seeing me become more and more alienated from my own culture and from their culture. And my mother lived with me in Canada until I was like 17 or 18. So mm-hmm. she, you know, she had spent quite a few years there, almost a decade and a half. And yet she went back home and she completely just reinserted herself into the community and into the, into her surroundings back into the culture because she had, you know, 30 something years to, to grow and expand and learn what it was to be Korean there. Whereas I didn't really have have those years behind me to sort of be able to come and pull from that. Yeah. Um, and I guess your teenage years were in Canada as well. And that's kind yeah. of where we usually form our identities and who we are. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And those are hugely formative years that I, I spent away from the country. So there was a lot of differences, I think. Um, and I mean, my father was not a very good man. He was very abusive. Um, I would go to help centers. I would go and speak to people, you know, mentors who were able to sort of talk um, victims of domestic violence through, you know, therapy and things like this. But none of them could really grasp what I was struggling with because it wasn't just the violence that I was struggling with. It was also the cultural differences because I couldn't simply just say no and walk away because for me to do that, that would be the end of a relationship. That would be the complete severing of my relationship to my parents in, in in their context. And so I was trying to find a way to to communicate my thoughts and my feelings. But so much of this was just unspoken sort of sort of tempest in a teacup, so to speak, in my heart. And so I was struggling with this for a very long time until everything kind of came to a crest and I had to walk away from this very violent situation with my father. I said, I, I, father, I cannot deal with this anymore. I've, I've done this for so many years and I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my uh, roots and my heritage. But if this continues, I cannot survive as a human being. I, yeah. I have, I, I, I'm only human. He took it very, very, very badly, you know, because of course I'm not communicating in the way that he needs to hear things or he needs to see things. And I still wanted to see if I could salvage uh, this bridge. So that ended with me being completely removed from the... So we have a family registry in Korea and they have... My lineage is 58 generations. 
Wow. I am the 59th generation, and he removed me from the family. Of the family tree. I guess the so. family tree, yeah. So he actually went to the, the office and got them to remove my name. And so they can do that. The, the, the father, the patriarch of yeah. a family, of a unit, can actually have the power to do this. Oh my goodness. So again, now there's misogyny, you know, coming in, all these layers and, and, and strata that I'm, I'm having to navigate. But once that happened, the interesting thing is I gave up my Korean citizenship and got my Canadian one finally after almost a decade and a half of being in Canada at the age of 25. So I had the choice actually to go back home to Korea and say, hello, I made a huge mistake. I would like to be Korean again. I'd like my passport back, please, and my nationality. I'd have to sign a simple document saying, yes, I acknowledge that I'm freely giving up my Canadian you know, nationality and asking for the Korean one back. Mm-hmm. And then that would be it. I would be given my identification number back, which I've had since the day I was born. I would have my passport, my ID. Everything would just come back to me. But now I was a person who existed in Korea that now doesn't. So even if I went back to Korea and asked for my citizenship back, because I don't have a, you know, any identity left, then I'm non-existent. So there was no Korean person going by this name, the 59th generation daughter of this family. And so that concept was something that I had to struggle with very, very hard because just as I started to finally feel like I reclaimed my heritage and culture, I lost it in yeah. the in the legal sense. That's one of the reasons why I, I, I'm sure you've noticed because in the first round of Postcard Salon, I used my English anglicized Korean name with a Korean mm. last name. Yeah. And then now it's a completely different name. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually. Right, yeah. right. So the reason why that happened was because I felt that until, you know, now my mission is to recover my identity, my lost identity, that, uh, the half existence, um, that I am in Korea. Mm-hmm. And until I feel that I have satisfactorily done that to my standards, I'm, I, I said to myself, I'm going to put my name down for just a little bit to understand, you know, to be able to process <clears throat> the abuse that I went through in a non-traditional Korean context. And then I feel like I could reinsert myself into the situation I was in and try to navigate that. Mm-hmm. But I think that I, I, I needed some time to learn who I was and who I felt comfortable being. And again, ask myself the question of how how Korean am I? Am I am I as Korean as Confucian as my parents are, as my father is, you know, the patriarch of the family that must be obeyed? Or am I a person who grew up in Canada that is desperately trying to recover the roots that she severed and, and is trying to understand what it means to be a first generation immigrant in a in a foreign land that will never really be mine, even if I have the Canadian nationality and the passports. So yeah, that was that was one of the reasons why I simply just sort of laid the name down for now, mm-hmm. and one day I hope to have the honor of picking it back up again. Wow, that's really it's really emotional. <laughs> Sorry, I just walked in here and then yeah, laid down all the emotional stuff. <laughs> no, I got goosebumps. And that was really yeah, it's really beautiful. Thank you. So I guess the talisman you made this year, didn't you? I did. So that must have been quite... Well, even hearing about it is quite a heavy work. And I think because it is so 
there's so much baggage there and so mm-hmm. much connected to your yeah to you personally but to your family and to your heritage do you think that you will like do you anticipate ever reconciling that with your family or it'll just you'll just have to wait and see how it plays out i think that the peace unspoken conversation sort of speaks or symbolizes the best it's like waves crest and grow and i think that there will be a point where i will have regretted not speaking my mind with the rest of my family well with my family that i am now cut off from Mm -hmm. and i feel that i will never really be whole without them uh, because of the culture that i grew up in and you know back at home to me i grew up thinking that family is everything family are the only the very few people the selective few people that are willing to see and love you for everything you are not just the good well, parts unconditionally yeah exactly unconditionally with all of your downfalls and, and mistakes and things but i i don't know how to approach this in a healthy way where i can stay safe and i can stay yeah. with a sane you know whole mind um but i sincerely hope that 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 is possible one day um, it wouldn't be very much like me to give up on it. So yeah. I'm still holding out hope for it. I'm, I'm not actively chasing it right now or pursuing this because I personally don't feel like I'm ready to go on this very long journey. And yeah, I can already I sort of see the horizon, the road stretches into the horizon. So I'm thinking, okay, I better rest and, and breathe deep before I go into this dive. I mean, I've heard... I've heard brief insights into this, like through my wife's work with, I think she says that they're often third generation children that she works with. So the two parents are from different cultures and then the child is of both cultures, but they're living in another country. So right. like if they're like, just for argument's sake, you could have one parent from the USA, another is from Vietnam, but they're growing up in Germany and the child's like, well, how do I fit? Where do I, where do I belong? I guess I've only ever heard about how it is, like, from a child's point of view, you're an adult and what you've had to, what you've had to go through as well, thinking, do I need to honor my parents and their, in that heritage or do I, do I find my own way through it? Mm-hmm. I guess it must be quite a shared experience and with a lot of the community that you know in Vancouver as well. Mm-hmm. Or in Toronto, sorry. Well, I mean, in both places, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm confident I'm not the only one who goes through this. Uh, there's actually, this is very, Funny, there's a Facebook group called um, Subtle Asian Things <laughs> or Subtle Asian Traits. Yeah. And um, it's all the people living, you know, I have friends from Vancouver and I have friends from, you know, and, and it's all a huge variety of Asian cultures. And that's something that I really appreciate about that group. Yeah. But the voice that sort of unites us all is the differences that we see from our parents' culture to our own yeah. and sort of the struggles with it. So somebody posted... A series of messages between them and their parents, and it was like, "Mom, uh, could I go out uh, with my friends tonight?" And it was, "No, I already made dinner, so you're going to go home." <laughs> and it was like, it was just like some conversations, and and I'm sure I'm not, I can't say that you know that's a universal experience, but it was something very similar to my own, and yeah. uh, there was tremendous joy in actually perceiving that that this person is coming from you know Vietnamese culture, and they had a very similar experience to. To my my experience and, yeah. and that's something that evokes a lot of joy I think in us to be able to see that um, the actual like almost like proof that you know that happens in any culture across yeah, everyone definitely. yeah and I guess through 
Well, I, I mean, I'm imagining within that part of the world, there's probably also an overlap with the different cultures because same as it is through Europe, different places were invaded and different belief systems were also tried to extend their dominance to other parts of the region. And mm-hmm. I guess in the Far East, it's really no different. You'd have the same sort of, what's the word I'm after? You're going to have like small samplings of things that overlap the mm-hmm. same, okay, like through the Mediterranean, how you've got lots of places that have got baklava or in the Middle East, how lots of places have hummus and stuff like that. And right. people think, oh, it's from here, but it's like, well, no, these people invaded those people and they took this with them. Mm-hmm. And throughout, I guess, with Korea and the neighboring countries, yeah, you'd have the yeah. same kind of thing. So yeah. the kind of home environment, you've got a lot of the same mentalities would be happening, like especially from the parents and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, even our languages, because like, Korea was a huge trade center in East Asia. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were sort of like the only connectors to Japan um, and China and, and these places in, in the East Asian um, region. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so, so we had a lot of languages intermix. And so when Koreans say Kirin, uh, it means giraffe. And mm-hmm. then for some reason in J- Japan, it's also Kirin, which is slightly different, but it, you know, you can see the similarities. And, um, in Korean, mandu is, uh, our dumplings. Mm-hmm. And then in Chinese, it's called mantou. So it's, it's actually when you really learn all three languages and you start picking up these coincidences, yeah. you can't help but wonder, like, where did these languages meet? And, you know, I can only, I can picture like two people at a marketplace in, in Busan in the, in the ports and somebody points to this and goes, you know, a photo of a giraffe and goes, yeah. kidding. Yeah. And then a Japanese person goes, Kidding? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then just they have that mind-blowing moment of connection. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, yeah, it's it's a lot of different things like food, um, language, customs, mm-hmm. religion. Yeah. That was a lot of really amazing insight, actually, and a lot that is difficult to appreciate just by looking at the pieces as they are, I guess, to something lighter. What's the connection to paper or how did you decide paper was your medium mm. to build your sculptures? I... Actually, I've been asking myself that a lot lately because it is it is a lot of labor that I have to go through to cut every piece and assemble it. And since paper is very fragile, I remember during the installation of the aberrant, the 10-foot one, I asked myself, why paper and also why installation? Yeah. <laughs> um, so paper is something very accessible. So anyone can go to the grocery store and mm-hmm. get a paper bay. Anybody has very easily access to different types of paper. Mm-hmm. But paper is actually quite special. You know, we, we kind of take it for granted because first, it is very malleable. Uh, it is very flexible. And it has this incredible tensile strength that we don't really think about. Uh, it remembers all of the changes around it, including moisture, cuts, creases, you know, how much heat there was, how cold it was. It basically is a physical remembering of its environment around it and actually one of the reasons why i was very emotionally attached to paper and i still am regrettably (laughs) somewhat Mm. regrettably uh, is that it is very human it is very human-like because we live in places and have things that we encounter and experiences that we go through that are forever with us and Mm. it actually shapes our our personalities our minds how we act in certain situations. And in that way, I saw sort of a reflection of humanity within this medium. 
and incredibly how fragile it is and how once something is destroyed, there's no way to restore it to the way it used to be. Yeah, if you fold the paper, that's it. Exactly, you can't yeah. can't take it out. Yeah. There's no way that the crease is, is ever going to go away. And, and trust me, I've tried everything. <laughs> you know, I've tried steaming it. Yeah. I've tried, you know, wetting it and then drying it. I've tried... I've tried ironing it. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried all of these different methods, but there is no way to take out ever a cut away from a piece of paper or a crease away or, you know, the, the ripples in the paper once it's contact, had contact with a concentration of moisture in the air. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no way to restore it completely faithfully to the, to the state it was in before. So I found that incredibly exciting. Um, so one of the, the most painful part of my work is that once an installation goes up, 99% of the time, when it comes down, I have to destroy it on the spot. And that was something to get used to because I knew that I couldn't keep it somehow. And in that, that scale, at, at 10 foot mm-hmm. scales and 12 foot scales, it's, it's virtually impossible because no storage facility in North America is going to have moisture controlled, temperature controlled, you know, unless I'm, you know, shelling out tens of thousands yeah, of dollars exactly. for it annually. I'm never going to have access to that kind of facility. So then, there comes the process of destruction. And uh, I actually had a, a curator cry in that process because I hadn't thought about it, but this ex- exhibition was up for a month. So she had seen it going to work day in, day out, you know, at, and when she switches the light off at the gallery, yeah. the last thing she sees is in the window space, you know, the aberrant there and, and up and beautiful and then going home. And then there I was, and I was crushing it and dismembering it. <laughs> I mean, respectfully, but it, it can't be... Destruction is never a, a gentle exercise. No. So it was quite shocking, I think, to a lot of people watching the process of, of me destroying this piece. But there is also the hopefulness that the next time it comes up, it will be... You know, the same concept, the same thoughts, the same voice, Mm -hmm. but in a completely different way. You know, every single part of it will be new and different. And I find that it harkens back to the way that we pull memories out of our heads. And, you know, it's almost like we sit in this room, this beautiful room of all of these vignettes from our lives, the most memorable moments, and some very casual and some very minuscule. And we sample them, we pull them out and we sample it like it's this vintage wine. Then we put it back on the shelf once we're done with it. But every time we pull it out, it's slightly different. And we naturally, as human brains are, we unfaithfully alter the memory slightly every time we recall it. And that's what this exercise reminds me of, is when I put something back together, it will be as if people remember it, but it will also be completely new and different. So also then each time... You have to. It'll have to be a recreation every time, and yes. it'll always be. It'll always be site specific, like because yes. it can't really exist in its own form in another environment because the dimensions will be different, and whatever paper you'd source or have your feeling on the day, there'll mm-hmm. be different, slight differences with each um, iteration. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's something that I absolutely love about this process. It, it is a lot of physical labor and emotional labor. Yeah. Is there anything from the paper that's connected to Korean culture? Because when I thought about paper, mm-hmm. I immediately thought of Japan, origami, mm-hmm. um, like the paper in the houses for the earthquakes. Is there a, like a similar kind of um, connection within Korea as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is um, 
the Japanese are actually were a part of the Baekje civilization in Korea. And when Goguryeo, one of the more powerful kingdoms within Korea, invaded the Baekje, lost their country. And so they became refugees. Mm-hmm. And being refugees, they didn't have any place to go. They were being chased out of different cities and things like that, treated very unfairly. And then they migrated to Japan. They joined the population of Ainu living there. And then later on, not endorsing this, uh, but <laughs> wiped the Ainu out almost. So I think there's a lot of connection between our two cultures. And one of them is coincidentally paper. Yeah. So in Korean culture, paper is called hanji. And in my interpretation of the word, there's many different ways to interpret it because it one word can mean a lot of different things. But han, I think of as the Korean han, uh, and that's what we call called ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and ji is paper, so it's Korean paper. Oh, okay. um, and I grew up watching Korean old houses. Like my grandmother's house was very old school. And she had the paper covering the doors and everything. Wow. Um, and I grew up with a lot of paper art, um, different ways of making usable, you know, bowls and mirrors and things like that out of hanji. And so, of course, my connection with paper carried over to Canada. So as I was leaving Korea, I remember by going to the, the local, um, crafts supply store and I bought a, a thick stack of Korean square uh, colored paper mm-hmm. to fold into, I guess, um, our version of origami. And, uh, I continued that in Canada. And I remember the, the one way that I got very close to my Canadian friends quickly, uh, was to teach them how to fold paper. Yeah. And it was something very exciting for them because they've never really had that contact before, um, with paper and origami. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it left such a good, impact in my life as such a good positive connection that when I was looking for ways to pull things out of my mind into reality, uh, the first thing that I thought of was paper. Wow. I've, I've really learned a lot. This is a really, <laughs> no, your story is amazing. It's Thank really you. good to hear this insight into what you're doing. There's a lot of, a lot of layers yeah, <laughs> and strata no, really to, to a lot of different things. Yeah. Cool. Being pulled out. Well, I think we could keep talking for hours, but yeah. we could probably wrap it up there. So, mm-hmm. really, really nice that we got to meet and to hear yeah. more about what you're doing. And yeah. yeah, I guess I look forward to seeing what you do next after the talisman. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't wait to show you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Kat Lamora and discovering the many layers of meaning behind their incredibly intricate paper installations. If you happen to be in Toronto this October, they will be exhibiting new work, We Bathe Here, at Margin of Errors Gallery from the 10th until the 26th of October 2019. I've not yet had the opportunity to witness one of their pieces firsthand, so if you're fortunate enough to be in the area, I recommend going to see the exhibition. There are more interviews from our 2019 postcard salon coming up soon, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. Thanks again for listening. My name is Michael Dooney, co-owner and director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of Subtext and Discourse. 